I wanted to bring ballet to more people. That was the bottom line. And I want to diversify it. I want people to see and know that a Black girl can be a ballerina and a mainstream white company. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team. To the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch. So what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey, everyone. It's Carly. This show might sound a bit different today because the skim is still working from home for the time being due to COVID-19. Today, Misty Copeland joins me on Skim from the Couch. She is the most famous ballet dancer in the world. She made history when she became the first Black female principal dancer with the American Ballet Theater. She is also a best-selling author, philanthropist, and advocate. Her new children's book, Bunheads, comes out this September. Misty, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to be talking to you. Welcome to Skin from the Couch. Thank you so much. I'm really excited too. (laughs) So I was kicked out of ballet at age four, so it naturally made sense that I did this interview with you. Very excited for us to bond over all things ballet. So we're going to start how I like to start all uh, interviews, which is skim your resume. I started ballet when I was 13 years old. It was not something that I at all thought possible or knew anything about. Um, I stumbled into it, was discovered at my Boys and Girls Club, uh, the local community center across the street from my public school in San Pedro, California. It was there that my ballet teacher taught me my first class on a basketball court, and she told me I was a prodigy after an hour of working with her. She ended up inviting me to train with her in her studio on full scholarship, and I ended up moving in with her and her family to be able to train really intensely for the next three years. I trained for another year and a half at a different studio. By the time I was 17, about four years of training, I was living in New York City dancing professionally for American Ballet Theater. I went on to dance as a corps de ballet member for seven years. Um, I was the only Black woman in American Ballet Theater for the first decade of my career. I then went on to become the third Black female soloist in their history. Um, And then in 2015, I became the first ever Black principal ballerina at American Ballet Theater, now in their 80-year history. I've had a lot of incredible opportunities along the way, amazing opportunities for endorsement deals, things that you don't typically see a ballet dancer getting the opportunity to do. Um, Estee Lauder and Seiko and Under Armour, getting the chance to perform with Prince and Taylor Swift. And I've had a very diverse career, adding author to it. I'm extremely excited that I have the opportunity to write children's books along with other genres. But um, I'm really excited about this upcoming book, Bunheads. I just got the book and it's fantastic. So I'm very excited to give it to people as gifts. Obviously, you've lived in the public eye now for many years and you have a lot of fans, especially at Skim HQ. What is something that your fans don't know about you? Something we can't Google or Wikipedia? 
So this is proof of this. I'm I'm probably one of the clumsiest people. We recently moved into, well, me and my husband bought a home and amazing designer, newly renovated everything. And yesterday I was enjoying my Sunday with spicy crab, kind of like a jambalaya. And I tripped over the carpet and spilled the whole thing on our blue velvet sofa and had to have an emergency like cleaner come in and clean, like deep clean the entire thing. I'm very surprised. I would never think you're clumsy. How can you be a clumsy ballerina? I think that there's something that happens when you're not on stage and you're not in the studio where you're so focused so much of the time on, I mean, naturally I'm coordinated, but I'm, there's just so much focus on my body that when I'm not having to do it, I feel like I just completely let go. I also think the title of your next book should be The Clumsy Ballerina. Just putting that out there. Yeah, it's next children's book. I want to talk about your childhood. This is a career podcast. We've talked to so many amazing female leaders at the top of their respective games. And obviously so much of who each of us are are because of how we grew up and, you know, the mark that our our parents and family structure leave on us. And that informs how we kind of go out into the world. Talk to us a little bit just about your childhood and what it was like growing up. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely shaped and formed how I saw the world and approached everything that I did. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, which a lot of people don't really know that. Um, I was two years old when my mom left my father and took her four kids on a bus. We drove from Kansas City, Missouri to Southern California where that was kind of the start of my life. Uh, That's pretty much in my memory. All I remember is California growing up. We moved a lot. My mother married two more times, had two more children. My life was just constantly in motion and it was constant. There just wasn't a lot of security. And so I think that it made me into the extremely introverted girl that I was. I was embarrassed about the way that we lived. Um, We often didn't have a home, uh, struggled to put food on the table. Uh, My mother ultimately ended up raising us six children on her own. And there was just a lot of hiding things. You know, I, I wanted in no way to stand out, which is pretty crazy that I ended up in a field where I'm out there exposed and performing for so many, but, but it was on my terms. And so when I could, when I could be a part of something where I could share my voice and my experiences without speaking, it was exactly like what the doctor ordered. (laughs) It was just what I, what I needed as a young person. And I didn't have arts in my life until I was 13. And so it was really difficult for me to survive By the time I started dancing, we were living in a motel, just constantly moving from different places, whatever we could afford. I think that had I not experienced, you know, just no stability, um, a lot of abuse, um, there were so many things that I just felt like I learned to be a survivor and I was just constantly in survival mode. So stepping into the world of ballet, it was like peace and balance, and security, and consistency. And it was the opposite of what my world was. And so I think that's one of the reasons I was so drawn to it, as well as, you know, I think a lot of people look at the ballet world and they think, you know, it's, I mean, it is difficult to thrive and and to be successful in, but 
uh, all the hardships I felt like if I can get through all I have in my 13 years with the life I've been living, I can get through anything. So I felt like I was so prepared, not only as a young person to be in, in the ballet world, but also as a Black woman. That was probably the one thing that I really felt secure in my identity was the fact that my mother raised me with the understanding that as soon as I leave the house every morning, I'm a Black girl, and that's how I'm going to be viewed and treated. And so there was no uh, lack of understanding in that uh, area um, of my identity. And so I think that really served me well when I entered the very white ballet world. Was anyone in your family an athlete or a dancer? Kind of. So my father, my father uh, was a basketball player like in college and my mother was a professional cheerleader for the Kansas City Chiefs football team. So she grew up, you know, nothing serious, but she took ballet, tap and jazz. But I didn't really I wasn't exposed to it at all. My siblings all were athletes, track, tennis, basketball, golf, all of it. I think I was the only one that just felt no connection and had no interest in doing anything, no sports. I just kind of existed and wanted to hide. You started ballet much later than most ballerinas end up starting. And so you were about 12 or 13 and you get told, as you just, as you said earlier, you're a prodigy, like within the first hour. Did you believe that? Like, did you, when you were doing it, were you like, yeah, I am effing good. Like, this is, this is easy. I don't think I really even understood what that word meant. I don't think I really understood it until I was a professional. That transition, you know, for children and being told they're prodigies and, and excelling and then transitioning into professional life can be really confusing and difficult. And I think that was when I realized the magnitude of that word. But it was never about being good at anything. Like, that's just not how I grew up with that experience. I think because I wasn't a part of the sports world and competitiveness, to me, dance was the first place where I felt like I was in this bubble where I could be myself for the first time. So I never looked at it as something that I needed to be great at. And it just happened really organically. And it was the first time that I um, I wanted to learn. I wanted to soak up everything that was being offered to me. And it helped me in every way of my of learning. You know, there's different, I don't have children yet, but what I've been told is there's different like methodologies, if you will, around how to instill confidence. And some parents believe in, you know, telling your kid like, you're the smartest, you're the greatest. And some are like, you don't say that or they're going to be the worst. And I'm curious, like being told that you are a prodigy at a young age, and obviously you accelerated very quickly, like within the ballet track to get to the professional track. Share with us just kind of your confidence level. How would you describe your confidence and how has that shaped itself over the lifetime of your career? The confidence that I naturally and organically gained definitely didn't come from someone like worshiping me or telling me I was the greatest. If anything, I feel like I pulled away from that type of language. What allowed me to be confident was people's belief in me and to, to have trust from people, which I didn't have that growing up. I didn't trust a lot of the adult figures in my life. I didn't trust any outside relationships other than my siblings that I had. And so that's what gave me confidence to feel like this is something I want to do and I want to succeed at it. And I have a support system around me that believe in me. And I think that that's, you know, whether I'm mentoring young people or I'm being mentored by amazing, amazing people in my life, it's allowing them to have the freedom to choose 
but supporting whatever their dreams are and giving them advice and your own experiences and not forcing anything on them. So much of your life has been accompanied by the different phrases, one of the only, the only, the first. There's obviously such tremendous power in that, but also a lot of pressure. And as you stated, you left your house and you were very well aware you were a Black girl going into a very white sport or white industry. That's also very, very infamously known for having a lot of pressure on body image and body type. And I want to understand sort of what that was like for you to, to experience that at a really, really young age and how you were able to become self-protective to survive it. First of all, I grew up in a very small ballet school. So there was a, not that big ballet schools don't have love and support, but, um, you know, it, it's working on different standards. And the goal when you're in a professional ballet school is to create students that will be funneled into a professional situation or atmosphere. And um, a lot of kids that grow up in smaller schools, and again, it's not every one of them, but have a different kind of feeling and atmosphere and why the people are there. And so I feel like I I had a, a very backwards experience than most Black dancers have from a young age. I was being protected by my ballet teacher who saw my potential and knew what I could be and also knew how real it was that I was a Black girl. But she never talked to me about it. She never said, you know, she never pointed it out that I was the only one. She never told me you know, the things that were being said, you know, there were parents that were pulling out of the board of directors and not supporting the school because I was getting to do leading roles or taking their kids out. And there was just a lot of adult things that were happening around me that were kept from me that allowed me the freedom to believe in myself and to just to focus on my training. But what was so interesting was that from a young age and not just from my small school, my ballet teacher, but these these were things being said to me by you know, leading ballet schools, the San Francisco Ballet, the Joffrey Ballet, American Ballet Theater, me being told, you have the perfect body for dance. Your proportions are perfect. You're everything. And so that was how I grew up thinking like that my skin color had nothing to do with, with anything. It was like, oh my God, I'm actually good for something. And then when I became a professional, it all shifted. And I no longer, I was then being told, you don't have the right body for ballet. And it, in my mind, it was just so confusing where it was like, how can these sh things shift? I'm still in the same body. How can they shift so drastically? And I think that was when I really just stepped back and, and tried to decipher what all of that language meant. And it's so closely connected, you know, race and body image. And that it's a passable way for the dance community to tell black and brown people that they they can't do it or they don't belong because it's a visual art form. It's about your aesthetic. And so dancers are so easily turned away because that's something that they can say and it's okay. Right. But I think that it allowed me to be able to express that and give confidence to so many people that just thought this is, I wasn't born with white skin and a white body, so I can't do it. But really exposing what that language means. You've talked a lot about you were really protected by mentors and supporters as you came up. I'm curious who those people are. And I'm also curious, how do you see yourself now as a mentor and supporter for the next generations, knowing the things that you were protected from and knowing what is still being fought against? 
I feel like I I hold little pieces of all of the incredible people that have come through my life and on this journey with me. My mother first, I think, not realizing or knowing she was being a mentor to me, but the way I watched her never give up was something that is instilled. It's instilled in me to this day that there's no giving up. There's no other way of existing. It's like you have a goal and you're going to accomplish it. Susan Faleshill was someone that early on really made a huge impact on me. She does it all. She's a writer. She writes books. She was a writer on A Different World in The Cosby Show back in the day. And she's a Black woman and often was the only Black woman in the room. Um, And then she was on the board of directors of American Ballet Theater, and that's how we met. And she was encouraged to be a presence in my life because... I think being the only Black woman in the company, they didn't really, they wanted me to succeed or the artistic director, Kevin McKenzie, did and he didn't really know how to nurture me in a way I needed. So her coming into my life completely changed my outlook on just how to approach situations. And from coming from someone who is a successful Black woman, though she wasn't a ballet dancer, I still could take her experiences and advice and apply them to how to exist in a white field, which, I mean, most people do of of color. Um, Raven Wilkinson was someone who impacted my life incredibly. She was the first, really the first Black woman to dance in a major company in America in the 1950s. She ended up becoming a close friend of mine. She passed, I think, about a year and a half ago now. But seeing someone who literally had lived and walked in my shoes, you know, 50 years prior, it was shocking and disappointing. But at the same time, it was like, if she can get through the racism and the death threats, then like I can persevere and continue this legacy that was cut short. And she wasn't ever given opportunities like me, Um, as well as Prince, you know, my husband, like two men, two powerful men that have been a huge impact on my life, just being black men who were strong and successful and knew how to support a, a strong woman in their life. But artistically, Prince championed me in a way that I'd never experienced up until that point. To have someone have complete trust in you was an incredible thing that I felt like it just unleashed the artist in me by having him support me and have artistic trust in in what I would deliver. Did you seek out mentors or did they find you? I think it was a combination of things. I definitely sought out Raven Wilkinson, but... I felt like because of the mentors that came into my life, I had an understanding of how to do that. But I think that you have to be open to receiving for them to even come into your life. Uh, And that's something that I constantly am saying to young people that I speak with, that they can be right there in front of your face. But if you're not ready to accept the, the guidance, then it'll just pass you by. And so I think a big part of it was realizing that I needed help and I needed the advice and I needed more of a structure um, and a support system. And then once that happened, it just was like a flood of amazing people, like especially Black women that that entered my life. I think one of the kind of hardest things about actually having mentors is how do you decipher the different types of advice. Like you don't have to, you know, take everything and follow exactly what what they say, but actually how to be able to really internalize it and figure out what is right for you and your situation. 
obviously the mentors that you're talking about, some are, you know, really big names and some are, are probably names that are, you know, more resonant in the dancing community and some just you connected with for lots of different reasons. How did you start to realize how to find kind of your own gut of what to follow versus what to sort of, what, what to follow what they were saying versus how to kind of carve your own path? Yeah, that that's such a great point. And it's really hard for a lot of young people, especially to, to not get lost in other people's words. I think that maybe I had more of an understanding of it because in the ballet culture and in the ballet world, it's really kind of woven in to the fabric of dance, uh, that mentorship. It's not something that's really said or, or, you know, implied, but our ballet, our coaches, our teachers, our artistic directors, our staff, their job is to pass down their experiences and knowledge. Like a lot, I, there is dance notation, there are films, but everything is firsthand. And I think that there is something about that, that my body reacted to what I knew was right for it before my mind could. And I think that's how I learned to trust my instincts. So if I was being told physically to do certain things that I knew weren't organic or right for me, it allowed me to respectfully sift through what I took in. And I think that I then was able to apply that to the words people were saying to me. And words are so powerful and can like take over the way you see yourself and um, the way you move in space and what you see for your future. And, you know, I've also had incredible people that have said things to me that have stuck with me. And I remember Susan Jaffe, who was a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater, and she was a coach of mine for a, a couple of years. And she just, and I remember being in a place where, you know, I was starting to do leading roles and being the only Black woman and being the first to do this and this, I got a lot of focus on me when it came to the critics and reviews. And I remember her saying, like, don't let other people's words define you. Like, it can completely overtake you. And it's really simple to be able to just say, I don't believe that or it doesn't work for me. It's that simple. And then it shuts it off. I want to talk about the physicality of your <laughs> chosen original profession. Anyone in any job has stressful days. You know, I've had stressful days where like my neck hurts. I'm like, oh, I really need a massage. Your your physical physicality of your stressful days is very different. And you've had injuries and you push your body to, to its limits. When you think back on the days that you pushed yourselves, how do you look back on that? It's all about, you know, pacing yourself and... It's hard for a lot of young athletes and young people to appreciate the balance of downtime, especially when you're when you're young and you just want to get to that next point and you want to succeed and you want to reach your goal, but taking care of your mental and emotional health and taking care of your body is equally as important as the physical work that you put in. And I think that's been to this day, it's still a battle, you know, to not feel like you're falling back or you're, you're maybe other people, you know, your peers are putting an extra work on those days that you guys aren't in the studio and that you're going to be left behind. But in the end, you can't control how much rest your body needs. And I think that's been a big part of it. But physically, it's extremely grueling. Ballet and and sports are a young man's game, and there's no way around that other than 
taking care of your body, fueling it, putting what what you put into it is going to make your body respond in certain ways. And again, how much rest and how you take care of it. I mean, you look at Tom Brady, you look at so many athletes that their life is committed to the care they put into their body and the result comes out in their work. Is there a moment when you look back that you're like, that was my physical breaking point? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there have been moments where, you know, as athletes and as artists, our mental toughness is like no one, like nothing else. Um, It's unbelievable the way you can convince yourself to believe that you can get through something, even though your body is physically giving up. But then there are moments where your body truly is at its breaking point and your mental toughness can't even push you through. Definitely the toughest injury for me, which was almost career ending, was in 2012, I think 2011, 2012, when I had six stress fractures to my tibia. It was that realization that I no longer have control over pushing through and giving in to the fact that if I wanted to continue to do this, like I need to step back and get help. But there was a reason for me pushing through. You know, it wasn't just because I was, I I needed to be on stage, which of course you need to be on stage, but um, the importance of the opportunities I was getting in that time as a soloist and as a Black artist, I was being given principal roles. I was being given the Firebird for the first time. And I knew that if I didn't do that performance, I probably wouldn't get another opportunity like that again as I was 29 years old, which is very late to be given your first principal role. And I knew that, the Black community was coming out to support me because it was them. I was them. I represented so many things that the ballet culture and the Metropolitan Opera House had never seen before. So I felt like I need to at least get through one show of this. And at least the people that were in the audience that day would see a future and possibilities for themselves. How do you handle stress? How do people know when you are stressed? Gosh, how do people know? I'm pretty good at hiding it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty good. I think that it's about communicating. I think that I probably shut down and don't share as much when I'm really stressed because I think in the back of my mind, it's like if, if I don't give it life, if I don't give the stress life, it's not there. And it's the opposite. It just grows even more and more when you don't give it attention and acknowledge that it's there. But it's not just just solely talking because that's so difficult for people to do when they're in stressful situations or when they're going through something. But I find ways of getting to that place of communication. So whether it's through food, I mean, I feel like cooking and food and those types of things bring out a relaxed way of communicating in me. So if my husband's there in the kitchen and I've got a glass of Prosecco and I'm happy and I'm being artistic and making food, these things naturally come up and he doesn't have to pull it out of me. So I think it's just about finding your best and most comfortable way of communicating. But if you, there's no way to get to the root of your stress unless you talk about it. I'm very curious, you know, it's very well known that like in like any sport, as you said, it's a young man or young woman's sport. And like, there's a ceiling in, in terms of like how long somebody can really go for. And what I've always been fascinated by your story is how you were able to create the business around the brand of Misty Copeland. That's not a, that's not an easy thing to do. And you can have all the great managers, agents, and fancy Hollywood people to help you, but like you are driving that, I assume. And when did you realize that there was more for you 
that you had a, a bigger purpose? I think that that realization of a bigger purpose wasn't directly connected to everything I'm doing now. I think that my manager, Gilda Squire, who's still, you know, it's like a, well, she has an assistant, so it's like a three-woman, you know, operation. But it's never been, you know, I think what people would assume when they see my success that I've got this, like you're saying, this big team of people around me. And, you know, it was one Black woman who believed in me. And she knew nothing about ballet, but she saw what... I was doing and what my voice could do for so many generations. The positivity behind my story and what I've learned and the tools that I've gained from being a part of this incredible art form. So I think that what she held onto and garnered was the authenticity of what I wanted out of all of this. And that there was never a specific goal. It wasn't like, I have to get a sports apparel endorsement deal or I have to get a jewelry. It, none of that. It started out with us sitting down at like a coffee shop and her saying, what do you want to say? What do you want from your career? And, and it was, I wanted to bring ballet to more people. That was the bottom line. And I want to diversify it. I want people to see and know that a Black girl can be a ballerina and a mainstream white company. And that was the root of where everything stemmed from. And, you know, I put in the work, you know, it was work I wanted to do and that were of value to me. And then all the amazing opportunities just came naturally. But I think it was really about having a strong understanding of what it was I wanted to say. And that's never wavered and changed. I still have the same mission. What was your first moment that, whether it was like the big check that you got from a brand you worked with or the big billboard where you were like, oh my gosh, like I'm doing this. Yeah. You know, I feel like I don't really pay attention to a lot of those things because they just happen so fast. And my sole focus is my career. So even though, you know, I was doing all of these other things on my like one day off, but all of my attention and focus, like I'm doing those things because it's going to bring more attention to what I do and bring more people into the theater. So I think the first time that it all hit me was the first Under Armour campaign, um, I Will What I Want, to see, you know, it wasn't even so much that the commercial I thought was amazing and it turned out great, but then I just, you know, I go back in my world and I do what I have to do every day, but it was like going out and whether it's speaking engagements or book tours, that I realized the impact of it and that it was reaching so many more people than I ever imagined. I think the craziest thing was like, grown men that would show up at my book signings and just say that like it was because of the Under Armour commercial that they had more respect for like ballerinas and they saw the athleticism, they saw the focus, they saw the similarities in other athletes. And that was why I wanted to work with Under Armour. And that's why that commercial was so impactful and so important. As you're a dancer, you're an athlete, you have a number of projects from the books you've written um, and this new one just coming out now to the brands you work with. How are you evaluating what projects to take on at this point? I'm, I've gotten really good at saying no because of my manager. If I can't put my whole heart into a project, then it just doesn't make sense for me to be a part of. And so then I end up running myself into the ground because I'm going to put everything into everything that I do. But it's really about what aligns with me. And I've never done and never will do something just because of the amount of money that I may get paid. 
But the, the relationships that I'm building mean everything to me. The reach and alignment of messaging means everything. And that's why I do what I do. And I also want to set an example and a standard that it shouldn't just be Misty getting these opportunities. It should be ballet dancers getting endorsement deals. And I just want people to have the respect, especially in America, but to have respect for ballet dancers and to know the investments that we put into this and that we work harder, I believe, (laughs) full-heartedly than any professional athlete. And we don't get a lot of reward, but respect as a reward, I think is most important to us. My last question before we go into our scary lightning round, do you think of yourself as a businesswoman? I do now. I think I used to like kind of shy away from that word, but you know, it's been, it's been many years now. And I definitely think I have an understanding of what's right for me and just having true care in the things that I do and knowing how to do them. But it's something that I'm constantly growing into. And and because I have an amazing team of people that have set an example of what it is to be a businesswoman, uh, my manager, Gilda in particular, that's, I think, why I have so much respect and maybe shy away from it because I'm like, it takes a lifetime to work into having that type of title. But yes, I would say I am. I think you are. All right, Misty, this is probably the hardest thing you've ever done as an athlete. We're doing lightning round. You have to go very fast. (laughs) All right. Morning person or night owl? Both. How can you be both? I don't know. How has your nighttime routine evolved over the last few months? I don't do as much. I just like, I brush my teeth and I go to bed. (laughs) It's much more simple. Last TV show you binge watched? 20s. Favorite quick dinner to make? I do a really good like salmon salad with spinach. It's really simple. Just salmon on the stovetop. Go get it crispy skin and stick it in some spinach and make dressing and go. All right. You're cooking at home. No one's around. Music comes on. Like what's the song you're dancing to? Uh, Some sappy, emotional Mariah Carey song. Fair. All right. I asked our audience on Instagram what I should ask you. Center stage or save the last dance? Center stage. Good answer. If you were able to perform with any dancer, dead or alive, who would it be? Arthur Mitchell. How many point shoes have you gone through? Oh God, I can't even count. I I go through 10 a week. 10 a week? Yes. (laughs) A week? A week. (laughs) Oh my gosh. How many hours a week are you still practicing ballet? Oh, still to this, I mean, not very many. I'm recovering from an injury. So most of my days are spent doing physical therapy, but an hour and a half is committed to that. And then I try and squeeze in like 45 minutes of ballet class when I can. When was the last time you negotiated for yourself? Um, It's a daily thing. Shameless plug. Oh, shameless plug. Bunheads. Bunheads. <laughs> I said it at the same time. Bunheads, my amazing children's book that I'm so excited about with an amazing artist, Sator Fiaji Bay, that brought the whole thing to life. Yes. Misty, thank you so much for truly everything you do and have done. Uh, such a fan and you're wonderful to talk to. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. 
Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.